With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight and analysis into all the big talking points in football. I mean, McGarry, and with me as always is the guru, Mr. Duncan Castles. Today we'll be bringing you exclusive news about Liverpool, Manchester United, Chelsea, Juventus, as well. Given again, and I love saying this, it's awards season, so the donkey, of course, is the most coveted one in the world, and we'll be awarding that at the end of the pod. We're going to start, Duncan, with Liverpool, uh, the one four. Two against Manchester United on Thursday evening. Uh, very impressive display of counter-attacking football. Uh, at the same time, uh, it did expose the um, defensive frailties, probably of both teams, although more so Manchester United. And news that we have is that one of the most sought-after centre-backs in European football from this time last year, Kalidou Koulibaly, at Napoli, um, is most certainly on the market. We have been told by an agent who is very close to uh, Napoli that Aurelio De Laurentiis, the chairman and president of uh, Napoli, is willing to take a knockdown price for the defender, uh, given that he is about to turn 30 years old and uh, will cash in on him. Uh, he was available for 90 million euros in last summer's transfer window. But uh, we understand that a fee of around 60 million euros, potentially even as little as 45 million euros, would be enough to secure his services. Now, we know uh, that Manchester United are interested and also Liverpool, although Liverpool have cooled their interest somewhat. But uh, from that same source, we're told that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer would like a, and in quotes, dependable partner uh, for Harry Maguire, someone that he can play with week in, week out, so that they can form a partnership that makes Manchester United more secure at the back. Clearly, that has not been the case over the last few months. Duncan, what we saw last night told us a lot about where United still are with regards to their central defence. Um, will Koulibaly make a big difference, given that he's got the experience uh, and also he is a different kind of centre-back to Maguire in terms of his mobility, agility and speed uh, and also the fact that he could sit in uh, in front of Maguire and let Maguire sort of mop up mistakes uh, that are made, if you like, and... Uh, but in the case of Koulibaly, uh, his job would be to stop those things happening in the first place. 
Well, um, yeah, good to be speaking to you on, on Ralph Milne Day, the, the 38th anniversary <laughs> of uh, Dundee United's first and greatest Scottish title win. Um, I'm, and, I'm, wearing, I'm wearing my tangerine black scarf as you speak. Excellent. <laughs> and it'd be amusing to think what the great Ralph Milne would do to Harry Maguire if he was ever to have <laughs> had the, the pleasure of playing him directly on the on the pitch. Um Look, it's no secret that, that Solskjaer wants to improve in defence and, and he has to improve in defence. Uh, this this past three, four days in which they've played Leicester City and uh, Liverpool at Fortress Old Trafford, um, Fortress on the outside with those barricades and uh, and police and stewards uh, organised to prevent the fans from, from getting in as they did um, and uh, managed to postpone the Liverpool match, but not a fortress on the pitch with uh, United conceding three goals from set pieces um, in those two games. Um, Some very interesting comments from Solskjaer about how they need to improve their set piece defending, but also comments about making golden, uh, breaking the golden rule of of making substitutes at at set pieces as he did in the Leicester game, which cost them uh, a loss, um, bringing two substitutes on, and and one of them, Marcus Rashford, losing uh, the player he was supposed to be marking, Kagler Soyuncu's, who scored the the goal there, um, brought up an incredible record as well, which is that in this Premier League season, which is obviously not finished, they still have one home game to play. Manchester United have conceded twenty seven home league goals and lost six matches at home and that's the most home goals they've conceded for 51 years and that that with Harry Maguire in the team most expensive defender in the history of game um, with Luke Shaw who was the most expensive left back when they signed him with Aaron Wan-Bissaka most expensive right back when they signed him um, and uh, the most expensive or the best paid player in the in the Premier League um, David De Gea on the bench because Solskjaer's decided that Dean Henderson is a better option as uh, as goalkeeper and and um, you know we flagged up that uh, there was a question mark over whether Henderson was ready to be first choice for a team like Manchester United um, when uh, Solskjaer was taking the decision that that David De Gea would go at, at the end of the season um, and I think. We saw some of our concerns uh, manifest in the way he played against Liverpool and that he made mistakes in three of those goals and, and now has people like Roy Keane talking about how small he looks in the goal and how he uh, he doesn't seem to have the stature and the, and the presence to be a goalkeeper for a top team. Um, Koulibaly is certainly one option to improve there and, and the fact that the price is coming down so aggressively must be tempting uh, to Solskjaer. They've been looking at other players. Pau Torres um, is one that the Manchester United scouting staff like a lot. Um, Very elegant defender, very good on the ball, uh, very comfortable with the ball at his feet. Um, The question mark, I think, over Torres is how he would fit into the Premier League. He's not great on physical duels and and I think uh, placing him into a Manchester United defence, into a Premier League defence, into a defence which has been... Um, so appalling in, in set pieces and, and costing United so many points and goals and set pieces would be a risk. There's also an alternative there is kind of the opposite, which is Sven Botman at Lille, 
um, who I think will almost certainly be sold this summer because Leo badly need to to raise cash and he has been outstanding for them in his debut season in French football. They can win the French League this weekend. They're in position with two games left to win it. Um, Botman was signed for an initial €8 million Euros from Ajax in the summer. Um, he has at points in this season statistically been the best in the top five leagues in Europe in, in duels. Um, very well adapted to the Premier League uh, and, uh, and I think would be uh, a better partner to Maguire. In fact, if I was doing it, I would replace Maguire, I would sell Maguire and, and use Botman in his place and, and put someone else alongside him. But United, I'm told, have been um, working and making uh, contacts with Botman's agents to explore the possibility. So he is on, on the list too. They have, of course, given Eric Bailly that new contract. So there is the possibility for the Glazers to say, uh, you now have enough resource in central defence, having uh, extended by his contract, you're going to have to work with what you've got. And, and it's going to be an interesting test of, of Solskjaer's power in the transfer market. He has, the, the, the recruitment system has been shaped in a way where he gets to make the calls on what positions they recruit in. He gets to recommend certain players, the, the scouting staff and the technical department will can also veto his decisions. And they are, of course, um, mandated to come up with a list of names to fit the positions that Solskjaer wants players in. Um, Solskjaer has a veto over anyone that they would recommend uh, as a signing if he doesn't fancy them. Ultimately, as it has been at, at uh at Manchester United since the Glazers took control of the club, everything has to be signed off by the Glazers. So uh, it doesn't, well, Solskjaer has a lot of power here and can push to get a centre-back in and can say, let's go for an, a, a top quality signing a finished product like Koulibaly or let's go for one of the best young centre-backs like Botman. Um, the Glazers will have to approve it and say, yes, we're going to give X million of our budget in that area and also let you reinforce in the other areas of the team where you want new players this summer. You suggested selling Harry Maguire there, Duncan. I would say good luck with that. Uh, first of all, if you're Manchester United and you want to get rid of him. Um, however, it is the case that they do need to strengthen defence. We know that. And even your dogs are agreeing with us, as I hear them telling us in the background. Is that Luggy celebrating Ralph Milne Day? <laughs> no, it's one of the one of the uh, the neighbourhood dogs. Oh, is uh, it? Must be a Dundee Re fan complaining Re about Re Ralph Re Milne Day. Reservoir dogs, <laughs> neighbourhood dogs. Very good. Um, it's certainly the case that um, what we saw uh, against uh, Liverpool with Manchester United, that um, once again they illustrated the inconsistency of performance. Uh, this season. Um, however, uh, I thought this week, and you may or may not agree with me, um, but going into the week, this week's fixtures, I looked at them and thought to myself, okay, so um, we've got Chelsea in an FA Cup final and a Champions League final. We've got Leicester City in an FA Cup final. And uh, we've got... Uh, they're playing, so Arsenal are playing Chelsea. Uh, we've got Liverpool playing Manchester United and 
Leicester City uh, as well. And if I were a betting man, which everyone knows I'm not, I would have put money on three away victories in those games. And true enough, that's exactly what happened. Uh, Because in my experience of dealing with footballers, when you have a massive game coming up where you can actually win silverware and get your medal, et cetera, et cetera, uh, you just lose 10%. You don't want to get injured. You don't want to get into tackles as the way you would do. Otherwise, you play the game at a tempo and intensity, which is maybe 15 to 20% less than you would normally do. So now it's easy, for, of course, for me to say that after the, the results come in. But it certainly is the case that um, these are the kind of uh, situations which occur. I remember um, speaking to Michel Platini uh, many years ago and I'm telling me that when there was a tournament in the summer and he, when he played at Juventus, he and two or three other international players at Juventus uh, would basically feign injury from March onwards in order to make sure that they were uh, both uh, injury-free and f- completely fit to play for their national teams in those tournaments, whether it be a European Championship or World Cup. And I did feel like I was watching games this week in which that was you know, that was the case. Look, United have had this very tight schedule um, forced upon them by the Glazers out protest um, and, and having to play Leicester City and, and, and Liverpool at Old Trafford in the space of three days. And Solskjaer, I think he was entirely within his rights to do this, uh, made a lot of changes with the Leicester City play game, played a, a weaker squad to try and protect his players and try and avoid injuries with the aim of finishing as high. I mean, he's, he want, he's stated that he wants to get as close to Manchester City as possible. He wants to secure second place and obviously to try and win the Europa League. That's the, the key prize for him is to, to finally end his long trophy drought and end Manchester United's um, three-year trophy drought, the, you know, the longest that they've suffered for over 30 years by winning the Europa League, the, you know, the competition he's got into because they failed um, to get through their Champions League group. It's kind of the default prize, but it is a very important psychological prize to them. Um, so yeah, you can, you can always come up with excuses and reasons why things went wrong. I think the take-home message for me in the way they are losing goals, and this has been a consistent theme of his time in charge of the club, is he, he's been in charge now for over two and a half years and he's still complaining about their set-piece defending and still coming out after a game saying it's disappointing, that's a set di- situation that we do- don't defend well enough and that's something we'll have to work on because we've conceded too many goals on it. And, and saying we'll brush up on the details and he thinks at least a third of goals probably are from set plays. Well, he, he knows all of this and he hasn't been able to fix it after two and a half years. He is in charge of setting out the defence. He has had ample resource put into that defence in terms of um, recruiting players he wants to go and, and make them more defensively solid. Uh, he has, by his own uh, words, the best selection of goalkeepers available to any manager in Europe, in his, 
is that's his statement. He's got the best problem anyone has to have over choosing between De Gea and Henderson. He's probably wrong in that, but that's his view. And uh, and certainly the expense that's been put into the, the goalkeeper selections that Manchester United have is larger than anyone's ever paid in, in wages for goalkeepers at a, at a European football club. Um, these are things that coaches can change. Set piece defending, organisation of defence is something where a coach can add value or take value away. And his case, the demonstration, the obvious demonstration is over the period that he's been in charge of the club, they have been weak at set pieces and continually weak. And he's raised the matter many times and he hasn't been able to fix it. So that I think is on him. And, and it's an example of where Manchester United are handicapping themselves by having a coach who is not of elite standard in charge of the team. You've got, you know, Luke Shaw in that game running into trouble uh, and, and effectively handing over a goal by, by trying to dribble out of his own team's box after they're scrambling to get a Liverpool chance away, getting caught in possession 10, 15 yards outside the 18-yard box and jogging back as Liverpool uh, exercise their press and go and score a goal. He, he, he runs back so slowly he doesn't even get into the penalty area after he's handed over possession in one of the most dangerous areas in the field. And this is a guy we're, we're hearing uh, praised to the heavens by Solskjaer being described as the best left back in the league. It's no surprise he makes these mistakes. It, it's something that's, that's uh, been fundamental to his game as defensive errors. Uh, but Solskjaer has put a lot of um, emphasis on, on using Sean, a lot of trust in Sean. And after the game, talked about how he encourages and puts pressure on the players to play the ball out from the back uh, because they score goals from it. I, I think it's true. They do score goals from playing out from the back. But as, as you know, people who are professional uh, football coaches and analysts have said to me, if you watch the way Manchester United play from the back, they do not have a coherent plan of getting the ball from their own area up to the front line. It's very different from a Manchester City uh, style of taking risks at the back um, and moving the opposition around. They, they look like a team who have been told, and this is what Solskjaer said himself, that they're under pressure to play from the back. So they've been told to play it from the back as much as possible, but they haven't been coached into an efficient way of getting it from the back to create more chances than they concede and, and not handing over uh, stupid goals like they, they did in that game. Again, that's on the coach. That's, that's bad decision-making from the guy you're paying the money to lead one of the most expensive um, squads in world football. Uh, and, and, you know, it's not just the last week. It's not just these, these games that they've been forced to play together. We've seen this throughout his time in charge. It shouldn't really be a surprise anymore well interestingly uh and and anecdotally as well duncan um uh, a now former premier league defender uh and and you will find out why he is uh was at a team meeting with his manager not so long ago when the manager criticized uh the squad stroke team on mass saying that they were the worst team he had ever coached at Throwins. And uh, when this said defender uh, piped up to say, well, you're the coach, 
if that's what you think, <laughs> why, why aren't we doing it any better? <laughs> uh, said player was quickly shipped out. <laughs> it's currently playing somewhere uh, east of the UK. Uh, so um, I'm sure that uh, that is a lesson to all defenders <laughs> who want to criticise the coach for criticising them. Now, as you know, on the Transfer Window podcast, we love uh, and we often bring you the news from the European leagues. And Duncan, you have news for us on the situation at Juventus, which has become quite um, difficult, it has to be said, for Andrea Pirlo. They're outside of Champions League qualification, which would be a disaster for the club. Uh, obviously, they were at the epicentre uh, in terms of um, Andrea Agnelli, uh, of the ESL debacle as well. And now it looks like they could be changing coach. They could be, they, or need to, um, dump several players. And they need a coherent strategy with regards to recruitment uh, this coming summer window. Yeah, they're, they're in fifth place at present, point behind Napoli. Um, so they are they're fighting to to get that Champions League money that they badly need because their finances are a mess, as well as their team being a mess. We we flagged this up for you, I think, a couple of months ago now that they were considering making very radical changes um, that the sports director Fabio Paratici would uh, would be uh, dismissed. I think at the end of his contract that that Pavel Nedved was also in, in danger of going, that Andrea Pirlo's job was in doubt as coach and post the Super League debacle that um, the Agnelli family were considering moving Andrea Agnelli out of his job as president at Juventus and moving him into another area of the business and replacing him with uh, with another member of the family. Um, his cousin Alessandro Nazi is the, the most likely successor. Um, I'm told that those those plans are very much in place, um, that Paratici will definitely go now, a decision has been made on that, um, that they are talking to uh, replacement candidates as sporting director, that Nedved will probably go out the door with Paratici, that that new sports director will be handed basically total control over the sporting side of the club, will be allowed to um, recommend uh, a choice of coach and will be charged with overhauling the squad. Um, there's not any budget to do that. It's going to be a case of raising money from the players that are there um, and getting better players in. Um, so it's going to be a, a hard um, task set ahead of them. Um, and that Agnelli is likely to, uh, as predicted, be shifted out and a new president brought in to, to work on the economic and commercial side of the club. So very radical changes there. Um, Max Allegri, who um, Agnelli has been looking at to come back in as coach, I'm told has now decided that he will not return to Juventus. He doesn't want to be part of coming back to the club when uh, there isn't uh, a strong budget to work with especially going back to a club where he had succeeded uh, in winning uh, the, the Serie A title in multiple years. Uh, the contrast he feels would be too great and the, the pressure and the uh, 
uh, and the expectation on him where he wouldn't be given control of the of the recruitment side. Um, he has, uh, I'm told, an offer uh, proposal to take over at, at Napoli from Reno Gattuso, which he is interested in. Um, he is waiting to see if the Real Madrid job opens up, if Zidane decides to leave or is shifted out of the club at the end of the season and, and is hoping that, that if that happens, he will be asked to replace Zidane, given his good relationship with Florentino Perez, but I'm told he won't be going back to Juventus. Sports director, um, regular listeners to the pod will remember that uh, in December we reported that um, Juventus were interested in hiring Luis Campos, um, who uh, recently gave a very long interview to this podcast, um, which I, if you haven't heard, I definitely recommend anyone who's interested in football having a listen to. It's fascinating insight into the mind of, of someone who's probably got the greatest recruitment record in European football over the last five, six years. Um, that interest, I'm told, has intensified and he is, uh, he is a candidate to take over as sports director, although no um, final decision has been made on the change. Juventus will keep this under wraps until the end of the season. They're hoping, they're trying to keep the boat steady. They're hoping to get into the Champions League uh, and then they will make announcements on, on the, the changes at the club. Seems like yet another blow for uh, effectively a rookie coach uh, in Pirlo, if indeed he is replaced, and it looks likely that he will be uh, a, you know, obviously a legend of a player at the club and for his country, and um, someone who was promoted one week after being announced as the new under-23s coach at, uh, at Juventus, um, and promoted overly promoted, it seems, uh, to the head coach of the first team. Uh, we've seen it happen with Frank Lampard at Chelsea. Uh, not necessarily a very similar situation as Lampard had a year at Derby before going to Chelsea. But still, um, probably a lesson in um, how you manage your career, as in even though emotionally your heartstrings pull at you, and say, take the job, that perhaps being a little bit more cautious uh, in terms of uh, how you progress would be a good idea. Well, we've talked about this before. It, it, there is a trend, there has been a trend in world football to appoint former players as managers very early to top clubs. Lampard is one example, at least Frank Lampard did a year at Derby before getting the Chelsea job. But it's, as we talked about in the podcast when he accepted that job he he kind of knew it was it was too early for him but he couldn't turn it down because of the opportunity and and the promise that he would be given time which of course um was taken away from him at the first opportunity by Marino Granovskaya which which he should have known because that's what Granovskaya and Chelsea have done their uh, entire time but you know heartstrings and and uh, emotions override uh, sensible decisions sometimes. We, Mikel Arteta had been a coach, had been an assistant, but never managed before. You put him in charge of a huge club and, and the dimension of the job and the, ex and the exposure he has without having any real practical training and, and, and ability to, to work through the issues of, of being a football manager, another club out of the, the media spotlight. Pep Guardiola did it 
but he did it having had a year in charge of Barcelona B. He did it in a in a in a graded way and with massive trust from the people appointing him and with a supremely talented squad, probably the most technically gifted squad that any manager's ever had in football to work with. Um, Pirlo is worse, the worst of the lot because he'd done no coaching at all. As you say, he was, he was being appointed to, to be a, essentially an academy coach, presented as an academy coach, and the next day presented again as, as manager of the, of the most powerful club in Italy. It's no surprise it goes wrong um, because you're asking people to do something that they, they, they haven't trained for, they haven't prepared for. Um, and then clubs have to pick up the pieces and, and I don't think you will see if Juventus make a good choice of sports director, I don't think you'll see a, an ingenue um, coach coming in to, to take charge of the team. They'll get someone experienced. Uh, who they know can do a good job on on the coaching side and won't cost them points and make errors just by by not knowing the job properly. Well, I reckon if Paratici does leave Juventus, it's clearly an open invitation for Ed Woodward uh, to go there and be the sport director with all his experience in football. And success that he's created at Manchester United. Um, I'll tell you just before we, we get off the subject, Juventus. I'll give you a quick bit of transfer news on <clears> them, <throat> and that's that they are uh, looking at doing a deal to sign Pervis Estupinian um, from Villarreal, twenty-three-year-old uh, Ecuador international. Was a Watford player until the summer. Um, Watford sold him to Villarreal uh, for. What is described on the on the website, official website, as for an initial fee of around fifty million pounds, which is a phrase I've never seen used on an official website before. Um, obviously, in line to play in the Europa League final against uh, Manchester United, although Villarreal are quite heavily loaded with left backs, and he's been in and out of the team this season. To give you an idea where Juventus are in the market. Um, they can't afford, I'm told, to do a straight cash deal and are trying to do something creative by sending one or two players in the other direction um, to uh, satisfy Villarreal and to help with their FFP budgeting. Pervis Estepignan is certainly a very interesting player. Um, Duncan, you told me uh, some time ago that he's a player who has uh, a lot of natural ability. Uh, but needs coaching. So that will be interesting to see uh, indeed if he does go to Juventus, how that works out for him. Um, before we head to the awards ceremony, which we love to do obviously on the second podcast of the week, uh, a quick update on something that uh, news that we brought you uh, two weeks ago uh, at Chelsea, which is that Tammy Abraham, um, who has not featured heavily under. Uh, Big Tam Tuchel, as we like to call him, uh, is uh, open to leaving Chelsea and Chelsea are open to allowing him to leave uh, this summer. Um, I'm told that the fee will not be prohibitive uh, in terms of allowing the player to go. Obviously, he's an academy graduate at Stamford Bridge and therefore uh, anything that Chelsea get for his services 
is profit. Um, and also, of course, we reported that Chelsea were in the market for a point striker uh, in terms of this summer to augment what already is uh, a fairly formidable um, front four uh, formation with uh, Werner, Havertz, Mason Mount, and then the point striker. But of course, as I said, uh, Tuchel has been playing a false nine uh, because he doesn't quite have the trust in Abraham and he sees Olivier Giroud as someone who will probably leave this summer as well. So uh, look out for Abraham um, being available and also uh, moving in the summer uh, for a round, we are told, a fee of around £40 million, maybe less than that, which in the current market is probably quite cheap for a guy who is clearly got talent and a nose for goal, but Tuchel does not see him as playing in the style that he wants, and therefore uh, Abraham, uh, if the right offer comes in and Abraham agrees to go, then that's what will happen. Not, uh, not, not sure that forty million pounds for a striker is going to be perceived as cheap in the current market, and that the noises I'm hearing now that the Super League money has disappeared off the table is expect transfer fees to decline by twenty yeah. percent or more um, over last summer, and last summer they weren't weren't at a uh, at a peak anyway. So, but everyone wants goals, Duncan. You know what it's like in transfer windows. The hardest thing to buy is goals. <laughs> yeah, and I think also what we're going to see is a rush of players being made available at the start of the window. Um, clubs trying to get raise cash rapidly so that they can they can spend on the areas that they want to improve. And it's you know, talking to talking to people who are working in the market. There is a lot of anxiousness and, and pessimism about how how this summer's window is going to going to pan out. I'm sure that anxiety is mostly from agents who are wondering where their commissions are going to be coming from in terms, in terms of getting uh, their players new deals. Agents, sports directors, and look, Premier League's just announced that it's rolled over its uh, television contracts um, for the next three-year period. They've basically taken the... First time they've done that. Yeah, taken that bidding war process, which they've used to ratchet up um, their income from broadcast rights out of um, action, they've taken out the possibility of of bringing in new um, revenue streams from broadcast rights, uh, you know, d- different ways, different digital ways of of uh, of getting to the consumer. Um, that, in one way, is a good thing for the Premier League in that they know they get the same amount of money as before, although they've they've promised to hand over. What I see is not a particularly generous hundred million to the to the football pyramid as a as a sop um, under pressure from the government, and that's not all going to the EFL. It's actually going to uh, an, an array of things. Some of it in the national league, some of it outside the national league, some of it Premier League charity and research pro- projects. But the I mean the fundamental point here is that the Premier League clubs still have the same expenses to deal with until they get expensive players off their books. They have run up big debts because of the pandemic and not having supporters in the stadia for a year. Um, there's no real extra liquidity coming to the market from that TV deal, and there's no promise of extra liquidity coming into the market. It's, it's just a holding position of 
well, you, you'll still have the same amount of money for the next three years. Normally, at this stage, the clubs know that they're going to get a billion um, or certainly hundreds of million extra coming down the line. They start borrowing against it and pushing it into player purchases. That can't happen this time. And the, the pandemic hole still got to be filled. So, um, again, uh, I, I think a, a, a break on the kind of transfer activity we have seen um, and got used to uh, seeing in, in, in football over the last couple of decades. Um, and, uh, and something that clubs are going to have to come to terms with when the, the dirty dozen, as they were known, and, and those clubs who were prepared to put, uh, jump in the boat with the dirty dozen in the Super League had been calculating on the basis that they were going to have hundreds of millions of extra cash handed to them via JP Morgan for this summer uh, and very significantly increased revenue streams going forward. That, that I think, is why you, you, you've seen this discussion of uh, big deals for, for prominent players such as Mbappe, why Mino Ryle is going around trying to get 150 million uh, transfer fee, 40 million of commission and 30 million net a year for, for Erling Haaland because he saw that money uh, coming down the, the Super League pipeline. It's not there anymore. I'm sure some of you noticed um, Jack Whitehall uh, presented the Brit Awards in the last week and uh, made some very funny comments about some of the people who were nominated, etc., etc. And you'll also notice that I'm not Jack Whitehall. Uh, however, I am here to present the most prestigious award uh, this week, which of course is the donkey and the coveted golden statue, which brings with it the prestige of uh, being the award winner uh, of one of the most coveted trophies in world football. Duncan, this week we are going to award the Sadu Mani Donkey Award for petulant preening after his refusal to shake hands or even fist bump his head coach Jurgen Klopp uh, even after a 4-2 win uh, at Manchester United and uh, I'm just going to open the golden envelope to find out who our candidates and nominations are I'm still using the Oscar ones by the way right first up Duncan David Beckham, who in the quarterfinal of the World Cup in France in 1998, aimed a very petulant and pruning kick at Diego Simeone, which it has to be said, Simeone completely overreacted to in a petulant and pruning way. Uh, but nevertheless, it resulted in Beckham being sent off and England losing out as they played the rest of the match with 10 men. Who knows what might have happened? But then again, that is the story of the England national team. Second up is uh, one of my personal favourites and uh, because it has two of my favourite players involved. Um, Paolo Di Canio, who uh, disputed the taking of a penalty for West Ham with a very young Frank Lampard uh, and literally tried to wrestle the ball out of his hands in a scene which I have witnessed at under-7s football 
but not in professional football in the Premier League. Um, <laughs> thankfully, he did score from said penalty, but Lampard holds a grudge to this day, and I can attest to that personally. Uh, and third of all, which is maybe perhaps the most surreal of all three nominations, is Aiden Hazard, who, if you all remember, uh, kicked a ball boy at Swansea City at Liberty Stadium um, for holding on to the ball when Chelsea were chasing a victory there. Um, I think it's quite a difficult one this week, Duncan. It's you know it's it's, it's a good competition. Good, yeah, good set of candidates. But I'm going, I'm going for Paolo Di Canio and and Frank Lampard. Um, partly because it reminds me of a of a magical moment in Los Angeles um, at a game that Frank <laughs> Frank Lampard watched from the sidelines oh. along with John Terry, Ashley Cole. You can't resist Roman, it, can you? Roman Abramovich. <laughs> um, when uh, a certain uh, Scottish um, forward uh, known for his work in, in newspapers and, and podcasts uh, sprinted across the pitch to grab the ball um, Hang on, penalty, I, won, penalty, I won the penalty. I won the penalty. That's a, why I was taking it. As a penalty was awarded to the media team against Chelsea staff and uh, and insisted that you, Ian McGarry, would have to be the one to put the ball past Josie Mourinho. So um, similarities there. Frank Lampard connection. We'll give we'll give this uh, this award to, <laughs> to Canio and, and Frank. For, to be fair, Frank did shout to me from the side of the pitch. It's your pen. It's your pen, mate. You gotta take it. <laughs> so I obviously said to my teammates, well, if Frank says it's my pen, then obviously it is my pen. So if only you'd shown such pace throughout the rest of the match, we wouldn't have needed to go to the penalty shootout at the end when uh, when uh, I think I've told this story on the podcast before when a minute was it a minute before full time, Josie Mourinho in the, the staff goal goes down with a, a hamstring tear. Um calls <laughs> for the medics to carry him off the field uh, puts his goalkeeping coach Solvino who happened to be a Portugal international and uh, European Cup finalist in goal uh, for the penalty shootout which they they then win and uh, when we saw Jose the next day at the press conference remarkably the the limp and the, the hamstring injury had, had disappeared <laughs> Well, we got to love Josie. This has been the Transfer Window Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it. Please, if you have, give us a five-star review on iTunes and also uh, engage with us on our various social media platforms uh, on Twitter and on Instagram and Facebook. Duncan is individually on at Duncan Castles on Twitter. I'm at GarboSJ. Please get in touch, as you do all the time, and we enjoy that. Um, until uh, next week we we shall be with you again Uh, it leaves me just to say uh, stay safe be well and thanks for listening (laughs) 